read for us our psalm this morning. Uh, It is Psalm 1, and it's in your handout. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So I went to Aldi last Sunday, uh, and I typically don't go to Aldi because Aldi is, well, it's small, it's far away, you can't get everything you need there, So it seems like quite a waste of time to like drive all the way to Aldi, get a few things, and then have to go to another grocery store as well. Uh, It may be cheaper, but it's like my time is worth money too, you know? So so I usually don't, but I was all the way down Murfreesboro Road picking up a, a thing from Facebook Marketplace for an Airbnb, and there was an Aldi. And it was kind of like a bigger Aldi, which you're like, okay, maybe they have more stuff. And it was right across the street from a Kroger. And I needed to go to the grocery store. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Aldi, see what they have. And if they don't have everything I need, which they didn't, I'll go over to Kroger and get the rest. And it won't be so inconvenient. I'll just see what they have. Well, as I was perusing their selection of fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, the organic section, if you will, um, I noticed they had something that my grocery store normally doesn't have, which is organic pears. Uh, and I was like, oh, organic pears, and I usually don't buy pears unless they're organic or I can get them, you know, somewhere local that isn't using pesticides or something, but I was like, yeah, so I grabbed them. It was like five or six extremely hard pears in a plastic bag, and I put them in my cart and, uh, you know, kept perusing around, seeing what I could find, but before I checked out, I remembered. I remembered last Sunday morning, this was Sunday afternoon, driving in to come here and looking to the right where the mostly untended garden beds are, right before them, there are like a handful of beautiful pear trees that were full of ripe, good-looking pears. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to buy these pears. And so I put the pears back. And on Monday, I was coming back here, and I was like, I'm going to get some of those pears from that pear tree. Uh, And so when I came back by, I stopped, and um, I got out my, my basket, and I picked these pears. Pretty sweet, huh? There's more than five or six in there. I didn't pay anything for them. Okay. So, 
And this morning we read a story about a woman picking pears or fruit. And I can sort of imagine that, right? Like, and you can imagine it too, if you can imagine me parking in the employee-only parking lot behind the pear trees, sneakily pulling my basket out and my little step stool ladder that I brought out of the back of my minivan and uh, hesitantly sort of like reaching for fruit as I look around uh, and then more confidently, you know, more audaciously as I like grab the trunk of the tree to shake it as hard as I can so I can see if some of the better looking ones at the top will fall. Uh, I was there and I was thinking, I wonder if I'm allowed to do what I'm doing right now. There's no sign. There's like fruit rotting all over the ground. Uh, you know, this is kind of a righteous endeavor. Uh, but there could be a rule that I'm breaking that I don't know about. Uh, and, you know, in honesty, I just wanted to have pears that were, like, not packaged in plastic and not, you know, shipped 2,000 miles to me. Uh, I'm just trying to tread lightly on the earth, if you will, uh, which on Monday meant perhaps breaking a rule and shaking a pear tree and risking the consequences. Uh, the pears look good after all, good for food, and I thought of myself as being wise to remember them being there when I was in the grocery store. So what do you think? Are Eve and I so different? We both used our own logic. We both took a risk. As I was loading up my car, I was in the back, putting my basket of pears in and my step stool in, I noticed while I had been picking pears, a car pulled up right next to the driver's side of my minivan. And there was an African-American man sitting in the driver's seat. And I was like, oh shoot. I'm in the employee-only parking lot, by the way. Uh, and I have to almost look him in the eyes to get into my car. And then I just start thinking, oh, what have I done? Like, what if this guy is Randall, the guy sitting out there right now, the guy who is in charge of the facilities of the Coleman Community Center that we actually rent from? Like, what's going to happen if I see Randall and he sees me parked in the employee parking lot, loading up my van full of pears, like, what ramifications are that, is that going to have on this other relationship that I have with this man? There was like a risk in this act that I was totally unaware of when I stopped. There was this relational risk in this ecological act uh, that I didn't consider when I was considering buying pears at Aldi. And then in an effort to preserve one relationship, I risked another. And I wonder if that's how Eve felt. Certainly she was neighbors with this wise serpent, and he thought that this was a good idea. He didn't think that she would die if, he ate, if she ate of this fruit. 
Uh, if she ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, by the way, is the longest name for a tree I've ever heard of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he thought that she would become more like God, knowing, knowing, and being wise. And, goodness, she was created in God's image anyway, right? Wouldn't it be right for her to become more like God? And also, why did God put that tree in the garden if no one was supposed to eat from it? Like, isn't that just asking for trouble? Was God testing them, tempting them? Perhaps the serpent had already eaten from the tree. Perhaps that's why the serpent spoke so confidently and knew so much about it. Maybe that's why he was able to converse so confidently. But did she dare do it? Was it something that she even considered the ramifications of? Or was it afterward when she started to feel nervous about being caught that she realized that she might have done more than she realized? And I think, I think the reality is, and I don't know how this came out at your tables, but I think we all have scripts in our head about righteousness. Whether it's the word itself or actually what the word means, what it means to be doing the right thing. And I don't think that most of the time most of us actually choose to do the wrong thing. I think in our minds, we typically choose the thing that we think is right. We have some kind of justification, some kind of wisdom that is working into the choices that we make. And we don't ever think of ourselves as making unrighteous choices. And yet, if we look back at Eve, or we look over at someone else who has done us harm, it's so much easier to point the finger and say, what they did was sinful. What they did was hurtful. What they did was vindictive. What they did. And when we read Psalm 1, we all see ourselves in the congregation of the righteous. But what happens when we are not? What happens when we are caught red-handed doing harm that we never anticipated or intended to do? What happens when we break the rules that we didn't know were there? What happens when we miss the mark or hurt relationships with others or with creation or with our creator? What happens then? Now, as you zoom into Genesis 2 and 3, you realize, if you've just read Genesis 1, that Genesis 2 and 3 is not a retelling of Genesis 1. It's a totally different story. Uh, it's not a scientific telling, like Genesis 1 is, is more, okay? Uh, it is an anthropocentric telling. It is about us is a retelling with different details and really even a different plot line. I mean, look at the details. It's totally different. Uh, Genesis 2 and 3 doesn't tell us a scientific order of things, but it does tell us a sociological order of things. It is a vocational order of things. It talks about, Genesis 1 talks about when humans and all the, everything else was created uh, and that we are to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 2 and 3 says what our purpose is. It's our vocational, 
enlightenment, I guess, that we are to care for the ground, keep the creation, the rest of creation, take care of the animals that God has placed in our control, in our influence. And get this, this isn't even a story about what this wife and husband named specifically Adam and Eve did. This story is not necessarily about two people. This is a story that people have told, the people of God have told, throughout generations, through an oral tradition and through a written tradition. And finally, we said, this is legit. This is, you know, we're going to canonize this. This is going to be a real story that we have. But long before that, this was a story that was told because this story said something about who we are. This story is not back then about this person and that. This, per- this story is actually about all of us. This story is for all times. This is a story about what not Adam and Eve do, but what humans do. This is our story. This is what we do. This is what happens. We fall out. We fall out of the relationships that we were once in, that we were created for. We stretch them too thin. We break them. And there were consequences, and there are consequences, sometimes foreseen or warned about, but mostly unforeseen, mostly unexpected. And I wonder how many of us know the strain and tension of stretched and thinning relationships that we didn't intentionally stretch or thin by our own actions. But I'm kind of left with this nagging question. If Genesis uh, 2 and 3 is a story for all of us about all times, then how in the world, if this is like indicative of what people do, then how in the world do we stop making the same mistakes that humans have always made? And Psalm 1 insists that it has something to do with righteousness. Follow the right path. Follow the Torah. And you will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in season. Whatever those tree people do, they prosper. And their leaves never wither. Be like them, the psalmist insists in their ancient lyric. Be righteous. That is the solution. But how? How do we do such a thing? How can humans be perfectly righteous when we are only human, after all, when we all make mistakes. Well, there's some good news this morning. When the human's relationship with God in creation and with each other break down in this biblical origin story, the result is not human shame. Actually, the result is human shame. It is in the story, right? Like, they literally, they felt ashamed, and so they hid. But, okay, there is human shame because they're humans. But that isn't how the plot thickens. 
That isn't what matters as the storyline goes on. If we follow the storyline, the result of this action is actually not human shame. That's not the important part. The part that moves the story along is that the result becomes a divine dilemma. And God's dilemma specifically is, what am I going to do with my humans and my husband and wife and my garden and my species and my planet now that humans have made this choice, now that humans have chosen poorly? When humans intentionally or unintentionally break our relationships with the soil, with creation, with each other, and with God, when we continue to live outside of relationship, when we continue to draw lines like, this is a shameful act, do not do it, that God doesn't draw at all. When God doesn't say that, there are unintended consequences. But get this, there are unintended consequences, but it's God who takes responsibility for them. It becomes God's dilemma. And I think sometimes we think of God as like a movie producer who is looking at the whole plot line of the movie and orchestrating every scene. But this narrative, beautifully written, and then the rest of the Bible told, tells us that God is not standing outside of creation, orchestrating events, playing with us, but that God is actually walking in the garden with the people. Emmanuel, the name that we give Jesus, God with us, is not just a name for Jesus at Christmas time. God with us is at the beginning of the story that God was with us in the garden. That God wasn't orchestrating all of this, but somehow still God takes responsibility. I think we are tempted sometimes that when we've made a mistake, and or if we didn't even do anything wrong, but our actions had unintended consequences, we feel that we've got to fix it, or we've at least got to pay the consequences. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that when <coughs> Eve and Adam hide from the God that created them, they are ashamed. But but God comes to them. And God says and predicts that they will carry their pain in their vocation much more than they ever knew before. That it would be with much hard labor that the ground and their wombs would become fertile. But I also wonder... Is this a consequence that is required? Or is it a prediction as well? Or instead? Is it that happened, so this will? Or is it this happened, so this is going to be what you struggle with for the rest of your lives? And maybe your children's lives. And maybe their children's lives. Brokenness isn't new. And we, of course, can't go back. But how do we move forward? And our dilemma, humanity's dilemma, the people of God's dilemma ever since Eden, is whether or not we can actually trust 
that what God says is good for us actually is. That's our dilemma. Is God a God that can be trusted? It's asked over and over and over again. And the tree is there, remember? The tree is there reminding us that we don't have to trust, that we can take our life, and God will let us take it. Temptation, I think, is usually sort of like, we think of temptation as negative, but temptation can also be defined as this capacity that God gives us to choose. It doesn't have to be all negative, right? Like, that there are temptations means that there are choices, and that God, we aren't robots, and we are, you know, we're, we are, we can choose to live with God in perfect <laughs> harmony, or we cannot choose not to, and it's up to us. Temptation is a part of the freedom, and it's actually the evidence of it, that we have freedom to choose. And, and in our story, and over and over again through history, we do choose the wrong thing so many times. I mean, some of the crap in the Old Testament is like, we're like the people of God are choosing not to trust God again. I mean, it's just like over and over and over, like playing into power plays and setting our identity on our divisions and our separation and saying, I don't have the time or I don't have the resources or I just don't want to obey. But Psalm 1 starts with this really interesting word, happy. Well, it also can be blessed, but it's this word in Hebrew, uh, Asherah. Anybody recognize that word? Asherah. It's one of the gods, the false gods that the people of God are constantly uh, worshiping, uh, like indirect opposition to Yahweh, their God, right? Like, like, don't do this. Don't worship this God. Well, you know what the god Asherah was the god of? Fertility. So, like, happy is this Hebrew word Asherah. Asherah is the god of fertility. Psalm 1 starts with happy or blessed or fertile, in other words, are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked. Do you remember the consequences, the consequences for Adam and Eve? It wasn't that they had labor, because that was already given. There was a vocation already given. You are to be fruitful and multiply. You are to tend to the land. But get this, it's actually hard labor. It's hard labor that are the natural consequences of this choice. With hard labor, you shall become fertile, the ground, yourselves. But something switches. As God takes responsibility for these humans act, God changes it. God changes it, and, and, and I'm going to get into this in another sermon another time, but it is so important that when God comes later to a, a two humans that he says, you're going to be the beginning of the people of God. It was a man without land and a woman without children. It was people who did not have fertility that God came to and said, here it is. Here's the gift. It's almost the restart of the Garden of Eden. Okay, it's like 
I could geek out about this for like 12 minutes, but I'm going to go on. Genesis 12, you can look it up. Um, where am I at? Okay. Yes. So it was hard labor, but God, God wants to change it. Wow, what happened? Oh, someone move. Okay. And the lights turned off at that moment. And then they turned back on, and we realized that it wasn't our sin that was the consequence, but it was God who wanted to come into it and make it different. And so we get this picture of God now, God with us, who comes to to us and says, follow me, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Follow me, and you don't have to carry around all that hard labor anymore. Fertile is the one who delights in the law I have written on their hearts. They are righteous. They are like trees, never doing a hard day's labor in their life. They're just planted by the river, and they're producing pears in abundance, and they're giving them away for free. There's two options set before you today. It's the Deuteronomy passage and the Psalm passage. These are, by the way, related passages. Two options, one in each hand. You can have life and prosperity, death and adversity. You can, have, you can receive life as a gift, or you can do hard labor to earn your life. This, by the way, is righteousness, receiving life as a gift. Wow, that's kind of different than, I think, what some of us thought about when we think of righteousness. Righteousness is not about keeping the rules and not breaking the ones we didn't know were there. It's not about legalism. It's not about judgment. It's not about shame or hate. Righteousness is none of those things. Righteousness is a courageous trust in God's provision that our God can be trusted. It is the resolution that our God can be trusted, usually with evidence to the contrary. Usually, not sure if it's going to happen. Righteousness is a trust in God's provision, despite evidence to the contrary. And sin, sin is the opposite of of righteousness outlined in Psalm 1. Sin is struggling so much to trust God's provision that we work so, 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 so hard that it's inhumane. Sin is not being able to see anything beautiful without working hard to possess it. And righteousness is receiving the life that we've always wanted, just receiving it. Choose. Choose is what the psalm says. This or that. Choose righteousness. Let go of your hard labor. Lay it down. Repent. Change, which just means change directions. Change directions from hard labor to life. Be like the clay in our potter's hand, reworked over and over again for our good. And, and, and it's like, I love this picture of this potter and clay because it's like when a potter takes the clay, the potter is with the clay. The potter isn't standing over the clay and orchestrating it. 
It's like when something happens with the clay, the potter is responsible to figure it out and to fix it. And what an apt analogy to what God and what the Bible is revealing to us about God here, that God is actually with us in the midst of it. And that when there is a mistake or a blemish or inconsistency or something that happens, when things go wrong, which is like the plot of every movie, right? Like there's always something that goes wrong. The potter just reworks it. Again and again and again and again, the potter just reworks it. Righteousness is living your best life, and this doesn't even make grammatical sense, but I love it. So I'm going to say it anyway. Righteousness is living your best life, the life that God loved you to be. Righteousness is living your best life, the life God loved you to be. And Psalm 1, the message of Psalm 1 is simple. Choose life. Let's pray this morning as the kids will come in in a minute. Lord, thank you for... Thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation and the way that you have revealed yourself to your people. Through ancient stories told around campfires from one generation to the next, until things were able to be written down and all the way up until today where we can't even keep track of how much has been written down. Dear God, we still remember that it is you who give us life. And in the midst of all of the options to take our life, especially now, can we pray that you would give us the faith, that you would give us the courage to trust in our relationship with you, that you provide and offer and give everything that's good and I pray that you would help us not work so hard it's inhumane but you would help us to receive with open hands the gifts that you have for us and all your people who choose life who can receive it we confess this morning that you do will our good and that our mistakes and the shame that comes with them is ours and not what you have put on us. We give ourselves over to you again and again and again to mold us and to form us into your people. And each step of the way and each step on the path, we give you thanks for the good that you have given us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.